everyone, I'm Patricia Duff and welcome to The Common Good. We're thrilled to bring you an especially timely and important conversation today about voting rights in our democracy as both are under attack. But first, I'd like to acknowledge a few VIPs and honorables in the audience. Uh, we want to welcome Congresswoman Jane Harmon, and uh, who's on our honorary advisory board, as uh, is Kay Koplovitz, who's joining us today. Um, we're always happy to welcome former Republican Party State Chair Ed Cox. Glad you're with us. Um, the Honorable Pete Granis, and, um, and and many of our past speakers or hosts who are also with us today. Jill Iskell, whose son Zach Iskell is running for city controller. Sally Menard, Bill Hubbard, Kim Tapel, Marlene Hess, hello, Rick Solomon, and we know we're going to listen to you next week with uh, from Halevi, Debbie Bancroft, and Liz Robbins and Ann Hess. Thank you. We've got a lot of uh, really interesting people in the audience today. So in recent years, we've been learning very hard lessons that our democracy is resilient but not guaranteed. There are now very controversial efforts to change how and where and when we can vote that are underway in much of the nation. We're also watching new efforts to change how we count votes and even how we certify them in ways that may put hyperpartisan hands on processes that have been held secure and fairly sacred and graciously accepted for the most part for generations. We now have unprecedentedly widespread attacks on election results so much so that many in the nation do not accept the election of Joe Biden, despite audit after audit, recount after recount, and which led to the riot on Capitol Hill and the attempt to stop the certification of the 2020 presidential election. We're someplace we've never been. Democracy is not destiny. It's an ideal to reach for and to keep perfecting. It requires careful stewardship, thoughtful changes, and dedication to the work to safeguard it vigorously. Today, in the effort to make our democracy more representative and more responsible, we have an exceptional group here who cannot, who can not only diagnose America's democracy ills, but offers remedies. So please welcome our experts. Michael Waldman, who we've had before. We love you, Michael. We've had you a few times. Michael is the president of the Brennan Center for Justice, where he leads their work to protect and improve our democracy. He is the author of several books, most recently including The Fight to Vote, a history of the long struggle to win voting rights for all citizens. Michael, we love having you back. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Carol Anderson, it's a pleasure to meet you. Carol is a professor of African-American studies at Emory University who focuses on the ways public policies interact with the issues of race, justice, and equity in the U.S. She has also written several excellent books, including One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. You should know that her book this, is called The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America will be out in June. Carol, welcome. It's great to have you here too. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And to lead this conversation, we're very excited to have speechwriter and best-selling author David Litt. David served as a senior presidential speechwriter and special assistant to President Obama and was the lead joke writer for many of Obama's White House Correspondents' Dinner monologues, which I love that. I was at many of those, and they were always fantastic. Um, so thank you. David's uh, book, Democracy in One Book or Less, offers a hilarious history of democracy and a to-do list of how to restore the balance of power in America. We also suggest you check out his interview with Newsmax, where he calls out the network for spreading misinformation. David, thank you so much for joining us. And now I'm passing the mic over to you. All right, well, thank you. Um, and uh, thank you everyone for having us. And this is a real uh, pleasure and honor uh, for me to be able to um, <laughs> talk to two, two different people who, as I was working on a book about democracy and trying to figure out some of these questions, uh, you know, both of you were research. So, um, that, so first of all, thank you both for that. So uh, this is really exciting for me, and I think this is going to be a really great discussion and also obviously a really urgent discussion because it seems like every week brings a new series of challenges for our democracy. So I actually want to start off with a kind of Quick question, um, and so I'm curious if each of you could just say, on sort of a scale of one to ten, where one is the least concerned and ten is the most concerned about our democracy. Where were you a year ago? Where were you um, in between the election and the certification of the vote? And uh, what number would you 
uh, or where, how would you describe your feeling today? Just to give, a, to give everyone kind of a baseline for the rest of our conversation. And uh, I don't know, uh, Professor Anderson, if you want to start. Okay, so where was I this time? So in May of 2020, um, I was about at a nine in terms of concern because I knew we had a regime in power that did not value democracy. Uh, where was I during, where, where were my feelings um, before the certification? I was about at an eight um, because I knew that the violence was being propagated throughout the, the it, it, um, information biosphere. Um, and I wasn't quite sure um, whether the, the, the line would hold or whether it would be more like the Maginot line that they would just blow right through. Um, where am I right now? I'm at a, at a nine. I'm at a nine as I see all of these states uh, implementing these laws and not having the kind of pushback and, and federal legislation that can basically drive a stake through the heart of massive disfranchisement. Well, I, I, I would agree with that. A year ago, I was very worried because at, at that point in particular, uh, it looked as though we might have a very hard time having an election in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and we may remember during the primaries at the beginning, it was a, uh, a complete mess and we were not ready. And we and many other voting rights and other groups were very busy working to try to get states to move on things like vote by mail and early voting on safe in-person voting and all those other things. After the election, um, I allowed myself to feel a bit of optimism because the fact is it was not a particularly close election. And despite the pandemic, and despite the voter suppression and despite the lies about the election, it was the highest voter turnout since 1900. And it was an electorate led by, dominated by women and voters of color. Uh, and it was really quite extraordinary and an achievement I thought we all ought to be celebrating. And that brings us to now where I'm back up at nine <laughs> in my alarm because instead of celebrating it, we all know the big lie has produced the insurrection. Uh, it has uh, uh, persuaded, still in the most recent polls, without any diminution, 70% of Republican voters believe our democracy is a fraud, believe that the election was stolen. And now that big lie is driving this wave of voter suppression laws across the country, which target black and brown and young voters, you know, with uncanny accuracy. The, the one thing that gives me hope, which would change the grading curve pretty substantially, is that for the first time in a long time, uh, Congress and the Democrats in Congress seem to understand how important this all is. But the question is, they have the power to stop this voter suppression wave. They have the power to stop it in its tracks. They have the constitutional authority. They have the legal authority. Will they have the political will to do it? And that is what, uh, what may send me up to 10 things don't go well. Okay, so I, th I think in both cases, we're sort of uh, a, a sandwich where a little bit of hope is the meat and uh, on either end, you have deep anxiety as the bread. So uh, I guess everyone can make of that what you will. Um, and so we have about 30 minutes uh, of discussion and then we're gonna open it up to questions. Um, what I'd like to try to do is split our time roughly evenly between talking about the problems and then talking about what some potential solutions might be so that we don't get totally bogged down in doom and gloom, which can unfortunately be a little bit easy when we're talking about these issues right now. Um, I wanna start by asking, we'll get to some of the laws that both of you mentioned, because um, obviously that's incredibly important, but something that strikes me about both of you is you've been uh, into protecting our democracy before it was cool. Um, and I say this as somebody who was you know, a little bit later to the game um, and uh, you know, whether at the Brennan Center, whether through your, your uh, recent book, um, One Person No Vote, uh, and so I guess I'm curious, when did you start to see these warning signs? Um, when did you start to think that we may be on a trajectory that will, you know, that, that would result in us being in this current moment? Um, you know, clearly it was before 2020. So, um, and we'll just kind of alternate order each time. So Michael, why don't you go first this time and then we'll, we'll switch around. Well, when I first became involved in these issues, it's interesting, the gravest new threats to our democracy at the time, especially revolved around the role of money in politics. 
this big new role ushered in by a series of really bad Supreme Court decisions, which all of which were before Citizens United, but same same idea. Um, and I, I have a somewhat perhaps mistaken uh, and blinkered view of the voting issues in that it, it, that seemed much more um, settled in the wake of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. It seemed much less uh, of a fo focus of mischief, of uh, much less of a source of controversy. I will say that, you know, probably at about three in the morning on that election night in 2000, when it became clear that the entire presidential election was going to come down to a few hundred votes in Florida, and that Florida was a state where everything wrong with our election system was visible, whether it was voter suppression, uh, people being kicked off the rolls, um, just rickety machinery. I think about three in the morning, a lot of partisan activists said, you know, we could win an election if we could just suppress the vote. Um, and it also was the case that a lot of Democrats said, you know, we could win an election if we started focusing on turnout, which they had not before. So I do think there's something that has gotten more and more intense in recent decades. Uh, and, and Donald Trump did not start the big lie. He, he just uh, amped it up to cartoon level dimensions. Um, for me, it was the Shelby County v. Holder decision. You know, I teach the civil rights movement. And so I teach Selma. I, I teach uh, what was happening in the 60s and massive disfranchisement and literacy tests and poll taxes. And so when you had the Shelby County v. Holder decision, and I saw that rickety reasoning, that unreasoning to, to, to viscerate uh, preclearance of the Voting Rights Act, I went, oh, we are in a heap of trouble. Uh, particularly when I saw these states that had been under preclearance immediately out the gate, you know, Texas two hours after Shelby County v. Holder, um, implementing its voter ID law um, and, and watching North Carolina. And, and I just went, oh, we are in trouble. And so then seeing the 2016 election and having the pundits describe it as, well, you know, black folks just didn't show up because they just weren't feeling Hillary. And I'm sitting there going, Lord have mercy. How do you miss something as big as this is the first presidential election in 50 years without the protection of the Voting Rights Act? And maybe that has something to do with the fact that black voter turnout went down by 7%. And, and that's when I got it fully engaged and started writing the book, One Person, No Vote. Um, well, so I think that brings us to some of these new voter, uh, you know, voter suppression laws, I think is sort of the easy catch all. I'm, I'm always looking for a better phrase, but, uh, you know, voter, voter restriction laws, we can call it whatever you want to call them. Um, I think there's been a, a lot of attention paid to what these laws do in general. Um, I'm curious, you know, both of you in your, your academic roles, um, what are, uh, and also I should say, Professor Anderson, speaking to us from Georgia, where I think the most, uh, at least um, the, the bill that's not necessarily the, the most extreme, but certainly the one that's generated the most public controversy has taken place. Um, what are things, what's one thing about these bills that you feel like most people don't know that they should know? Um, I think it's the way that they are couched in terms of for election integrity. And so these, these laws will swaddle themselves in the flag and patriotism and democracy, when in fact what they do is they target key voters, key constituencies, and figure out what are basically the kinds of socioeconomic statuses that um, make it difficult for that constituency to vote, and then to erect these barriers under the guise of election integrity. So they make it seem plausible. They make it seem reasonable. Um, voter ID seems reasonable, except when you start pulling back the way that they do voter ID and the rationale for it, you see how it is really, and this is the scholarly term, a hot mess. It <laughs> is just awful. It is looking at data to figure out who has what types of IDs and privileging the IDs that whites have. And, and, and making invalid the IDs that African-Americans and Hispanics have um, to be able to access the ballot box. 
Can you go into some uh, just specifics? So when you say, for example, privileging certain uh, types of IDs over others, what are some of the IDs that are privileged and what are some that are less privileged? Yeah, so one of the things that you saw in Texas, for instance, with Texas's ID law, is that they said that you have to have a government issued photo ID. So the, the aura is, is that any ID, but it's really a government issued photo ID that's on their list. That government issued photo ID said your concealed weapons uh, ID counts as access to the ballot box, but your student ID from a state university or college does not. There are different demographic bases for those who have guns and those who are going to universities. Um, and so that's how you can, can, can skew the electorate by skewing who has access to that ID. It's Alabama saying you have to have a government issued photo ID, but saying that your public housing ID does not count when 71% of those in Alabama in public housing are African-American. That's how that works. St Stephen Colbert said about that Texas law, he said, oh, it's really, that's a very um, egalitarian law. It's a lot easier to get a gun than a college degree. So, you know, that means uh, it's, it's more participatory that way. Um, so many of these laws, you know, look neutral on their face. And, and there's a misunderstanding about the Jim Crow era. Those laws look neutral on their face too. They were just either carefully crafted or enforced in a way that was brutally uh, targeted. At, at black voters, and you know, in the in the weeks after the Georgia law, and it was not as bad as the version two days before, but it was just as targeted. However, and putting aside the, the scene of the governor signing it in front of the oil portrait of, of of a slave plantation, putting that optics aside, as an African American state senator is is arrested for knocking on the door. You know, the idea got out there of, oh, well, maybe this wasn't so bad, and maybe there was good stuff in there too, as well as bad stuff. And and really what's happened since then, just in the in the weeks since then, has has pretty much um, given clarity to what's really going on here, which is when you look at the law that passed in Florida, when you look at the proposals in Texas, they are aimed specifically to carve out certain voters. And we heard it out loud in Arizona. Um, by the sponsor of the legislation there who said to CNN and who said during the, the hearings on, on the bill in Arizona, which targets vote by mail and targets early voting and automatic voter registration and lots of other previously non-controversial things. Um, he said, well, yes, some people, I guess, say that it's good for all eligible voters to, to be able to vote. And I guess that's, that's true. But what we care about is not so much quantity of voters as quality of voters. We want to make sure that only quality voters can vote. Well, uh, you don't have to scratch too far beneath the surface to understand the ugly history of something like that. There's language of that kind going back two centuries aimed not only at uh, African-American voters or at Latino voters, but at immigrant voters, at Catholic voters uh, in the cities, at Jewish voters going back to the country's beginning. This fight over the shape of our democracy, this fight between people who had an expansive notion of it and people who were trying mostly to kind of cling to power goes back to the, the, the very earliest days. That's what's going on. I think that's a really interesting point. Um, you know, I think in one of his uh, many, many tweets while that was still going on, um, former President Trump talked about voting privileges rather than voting rights. And I think something you're, you're pointing out, uh, Michael, is that we still, to a large extent, have a structure of voting privileges in the country, even though most of us think of, of voting and, and the right to vote as a right. Um, and I wanted to get into that history question, because both of you have written not just about the present circumstances that we're facing, but um, you know, you've both written books about the history of voting and the history of voting rights. Um, you know, is there a historical parallel to the moment that we're in? And then um, to what extent is this particular moment unprecedented um, in history, in American history? Uh, and Michael, this, this, this time uh, you're going first. Um, I, I do think uh, there are analogies. Um, and I think, you know, we need to be transparent that in many respects, things have not gotten as bad as they have at other times. Although, as was said before, we have not had an insurrection 
the Confederate flag has not broke, you know, didn't breach the Capitol even in 1861. Um, uh, uh, so I would not minimize the threats our democracy faces today from one of the political parties forging itself into an basically an anti-democratic force. But if you look at the late 19th century, the, the, the late 1800s, it was a time of demographic change, of immigration, of recently, uh, uh, recently enfranchised, formerly enslaved people, um, but of great economic turmoil, of great inequality, of new power for the, the gilded age wealthy of the time, uh, where there was actually at that point a rolling back of American democracy. Um, and, uh, and it was hugely fought over um, then and now. And the fact that we're fighting about this and talking about this stuff now is not unusual. It's actually more unusual for it to be a topic of quiet contemplation rather than uh, brawling politics. Um, and, and I would say that um, where I see those parallels is that you know we talk about the 1890s and the Mississippi Plan of 1890, which was this compilation of massive disfranchisement, where they pulled together all the tools in the toolkit to figure out how do you stop Black folks from voting, um, and and the the genesis for that was that you had Blacks voting with poor whites in order to deal with a new economic system where they knew that they were working from taint to taint and they still couldn't. And the, that political power uh, frightened the powers that be. And it was like, how do we stop this? How do we stop all of these people from voting? Because if democracy is working, then we're gonna get voted out of power and a new world order is coming into play where our riches will not be protected the way that they are right now where we can't just have labor without rights. And, and so they, you had the power of massive disfranchisement to bring that about. When you think about what happened in 2020, this massive pandemic, economic meltdown, you have people mobilizing for a better future, a stronger future, a more inclusive future, a purely multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-religious democracy and they came out in the midst of a pandemic to vote, to save this democracy. The response was, we can't have this. And you see a wave of laws and the same thing that happened to me, the same thing that happened in the South was that you have these, this wave of laws written in race neutral language, but targeted that looks legitimate. They use the language of cleaning up corruption at the ballot box, having election integrity, making sure we're saving democracy. This is the same um, playbook that we're hearing right now. We must have election integrity. We must clean up corruption at the ballot box. When in fact, what it's doing by using this race neutral language is undermining democracy by stopping American citizens whom they don't want to vote from being able to easily gain access to the ballot box. That's where I see the parallels. That's interesting. And something I think both of you are pointing out is, um, so first of all, the, that most of us have lived most of our lives post Voting Rights Act. And so in this period of un, the, the sort of un, uh, ab abnormal calm, um, which might make this particular moment seem so different. And in fact, this tension and this tug of war and, and this fight has been going on for most of American history. And the other thing, that I think is worth kind of highlighting from all this is the, the idea that we're moving forward, but also we can move backwards. And there have been real periods in American history where we have moved, we, you know, we have not taken you know, two steps forward, one step back, we've just taken a bunch of steps back. And potentially we could be in one of those periods right now. Um, I wanna ask, um, so I think so far we've largely talked about what is happening in, for lack of a, a less sweeping term, red states, for states where the Republican Party um, is in sort of full control, and that's where a lot of these laws are passing, and where it seems like, um, you know, the the and some people, I think Michael, as you pointed out, are even just going out and saying it. We are saying we don't want everybody to vote. We want to make sure that you know as many of our voters are voting and as many of their voters are not. But blue states, of course, are not immune from election issues. Um, you know, Michael, you're coming to us from New York. Uh, I, I grew up in New York. My in-laws live in New Jersey. Right? I live in D.C. Um, right. So areas that are run by Democrats, plenty of them have election issues of their own. So the question that I would ask is, what can the role of um, 
blue states or, or to be a little bit more charitable, states where people want to expand democracy, um, how can officials uh, improve election administration and how can, uh, is there a way that can affect the overall picture of our democracy in the country? Well, you're exactly right that New York, for example, has had long had dreadful election laws. Uh, and uh, it was the case during one of the trials of one of the sort of smorgasbord uh, of, uh, of voter suppression laws in North Carolina about eight years ago, the state's defense was, well, yes, we cut back on early voting, but New York doesn't have any early voting. And we cut back on vote by mail, but New York doesn't have any vote by mail and so forth. And that was a fair point. Now, New York uh, and many other of the old Northeastern states, especially, um, it was partisan. I wouldn't even say it was partisan paralysis. It was a mutually agreed uh, pact, unspoken pact by both political parties in places like New York to make sure that voters couldn't vote. Um, and uh, that has changed somewhat in recent years. New York State, again, to specifically point out, just in the last few years has made enormous strides in how it runs elections. Uh, we now have by statute for the first time early voting. Um, we had vote by mail uh, in a meaningful way during the pandemic. Um, we have enacted into law automatic voter registration and also small donor public financing of campaigns, a system that is going into effect. So New York, while not exactly leading as it ought to be, is, has, is heading in the right direction emphatically. The other thing I'll say is that until recent months, much of the trajectory in states, and this is not only in, in blue states, but in red states and in purple states, has been positive. Uh, in Florida, by ballot initiative, the voters ended that state's notorious felony disenfranchisement system that uh, prevented 1.4 million people uh, from exercising their right to vote, although the legislature, the Republican legislature, then largely undid that. Automatic voter registration is passed all over the country. Redistricting reform passed on the ballot in Michigan, in Nevada, in Colorado, in Utah. Uh, so all different kinds of states. So it hasn't only been, it's been across the country and it's been not just in democratic states, but in mixed and Republican states that there's been progress. But but the, the, uh, the big lie becoming the central unifying talking point and principle for one of the two political parties now may have thrown much of that into doubt. And, and Michael, just so that I, I know the bill that you're talking about in Florida or the ballot initiative was passed by the voters rather than by the legislature. That's right, 64% of the vote. Is the same thing true of some of those other cases, Michigan, for example, that you mentioned? Some by voters. Um, uh, so the ballot initiatives on automatic voter registration, for example, uh, or redistricting in Michigan or in Utah or Colorado but some by legislatures. Redistricting reform was pushed through by Republican Governor um, Kasich in Ohio. Uh, governor Rauner, the Republican governor of Illinois, signed automatic voter registration into law after it passed the state legislature there unanimously. Brian Kemp in Georgia passed automatic voter registration. So turns out these things aren't controversial until suddenly they're, they're, they are. Yeah. Um, and Professor Anderson, do you want to add to that? Are there things that you can, you think that um, uh, you know states that are acting in good faith and trying to expand democracy can do better than they're currently doing? Um, I think what we're seeing, and I think Michael laid it out beautifully, um, is that we've had these states who who are asking the question, how do we expand access to the ballot box for our citizens? When they're asking that question. Um, then they're coming up with things like automatic voter registration. So they're not creating all of these hoops to jump through in order for people to register to vote. Because what we know, like from the 1988 election, which had the lowest voter turnout since 1924, was that one of the key issues was the difficulty in getting people registered to vote. So how do we increase voter turnout? How do we increase participation in the democracy? When that's your central question, then you're organizing yourself accordingly. When your question is, how do we control the electorate? I mean, it's Paul Weyrich who gave that 
incredible speech saying, I don't believe in good government. All you goo-goos, you want everybody to vote. Well, I don't want everybody to vote because quite frankly, quite candidly, our leverage goes up as the voting populace goes down. When that's your central question, how do we make the voting populace go down? Then you're getting this wave of voter suppression laws that we're seeing. So, and, and I think, and Paul Weirich was one of the sort of um, uh, parents of the Heritage Foundation, is that right? The, the conservative- And of Alec. But, oh, okay. Uh, and Alec, yeah, and then Alec being the sort of copy mm -hmm. and paste uh, state legislative organization, right? Is that- Yes. I, I, I'm just trying to keep 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 all of the different organizations straight. Um, so I, one of the things that I, I, do, I do think is interesting, though, is just thinking about this as a Democrat. I think this last election did, to some extent, belie this idea that high turnout purely benefits Democrats. Um, you know, I, there was enormous turnout, uh, Michael, as you pointed out, but um, you know, a huge amount of that turnout was for President Trump, and a lot of people, a lot of first-time voters or people who didn't vote in the last election supported President Trump. So I do think the, um, you know, to, to move this out of a partisan lane for a second, I think there are certainly plenty of voters uh, of all sorts of persuasions who's, who would be brought into the system the more people can vote. Um, and, and, and even beyond the presidential election, actually Republicans did better than expected um, in Congress. And it, they certainly did better than the Democrats wanted them to in state legislative races in this high turnout environment. You're exactly right. So, so uh, exactly what I didn't plan to do. I, we now have about 10 minutes of discussion left before Q&A, and we haven't really gotten into solutions. So we're going to have to solve everything in a little less than 10 minutes. I'm sure we're up to it. Um, I want to start with this question of certification. This was not a problem. I don't think that people saw coming in any serious way until relatively recently. But of course, we've all seen the consequences after January 6th. This question of the, what's supposed to be a purely functional process, certifying the election results, becoming something that is partisan and contentious and can even lead to violence. Is there anything that we can do um, that would re, uh, you know, restore certification's role in the process, which is a much smaller role than uh, it was in this last year, that would, that would take this out of the political arena and make it a, a sort of functional procedural process again, so that elections, we, we know that elections can be certified. Um, and I forget who's who's going first. So if anyone wants to jump in. Um, I think that what has to happen really is the dismantling of the big lie, because the big lie is the thing that is driving the question about the certification of elections. I mean, one of the things that we saw happening here in Georgia, not only did you have the, the, the laws dealing with how do we depress black voter turnout, but you also have the laws dealing with how do we lower the guardrails that prevented President Trump from overturning the election results and the certification in Georgia. So you have now the legislature weighing in saying we can remove county boards of elections and we can then appoint our own election czar who can certify the election. So part of what we have to do is dismantle the big lie. That big lie is driving millions of people to believe that the certification is in fact invalid if their person doesn't win. That, that is absolutely a, um, a critical component of what has to happen here to depoliticize this. And uh, Michael, is there anything from the, the legislative or legal standpoint that the Brennan Center has sort of offered when it comes to certification? Well, you know, uh, it's attributed either to Boss Tweed or Stalin. Uh, I don't care Dang. how people vote. I, I care who counts, the, as long as I get to count the votes. M many of the great quotes turn out never to have been said by the person who supposedly said them. But whoever said that was making a good point. Um, and if you look at a lot of these laws, especially the recent ones, they, they go precisely to this question of who counts the votes. Um, there are legal challenges that can be made. Um, there are uh, there is a real value in supporting and enacting nonpartisan election administration. But I think all of us of both parties need to stand up vociferously to defend these election officials. Of both Republicans and Democrats, they are facing death threats. They are facing violence. Many of them are afraid. Many of them are leaving their jobs. It's an assault on our democratic institutions. We might see it in a place like Hungary or in, or in states that 
had weak democracies that are sliding toward authoritarianism. That is happening right now all over our country. And we need to be backing up these election officials. Um, well, so with the limited discussion time that we have before we, we start the Q&A, um, I think there's a general broad sense, and, and I think we've touched on a little bit, that there are bills in Congress that could do a lot um, if we were, that n none of them will survive a filibuster. So if um, Democrats in the Senate decide that they want to uh, essentially neutralize the filibuster, they can pass some big bills that would address a lot of these issues. Um, but I want to put that aside for a second, both because that's not certain to happen and also because I think um, it's it, maybe the, I'm curious about the less straightforward paths. If the filibuster sticks around and so um, federal legislation is not really in the cards this Congress, um, you know, so barring that, what, would, what do you think would be the most important thing that um, the country could do and, and who could do it um, to protect our elections and our democracy as we head into 22 and, and beyond? David, with deference, I want to fight the premise. Yes, the Justice Department with Kristen Clark as the new head of the uh, Civil Rights Division can bring lawsuits, but we cannot, we cannot simply shrug about the fact that Congress is going to allow our democracy to be destroyed in front of our eyes. H.R. 1, S. 1, the For the People Act, the most significant democracy reform bill in over half a century. It's not a pipe dream. It passed the House of Representatives. It would set national standards. It would stop these voter suppression laws. It would make early voting, vote by mail, automatic voter registration, the law of the land. It would stop the partisan gerrymandering that's going to start in a few weeks all across the country and address money in politics too. And it is massively popular. It is extraordinarily popular with the public, as all the polls show. And those in Congress, whether it's Senator Manchin or others, uh, who say they support the bill or support parts of the bill, are going to have to decide, is their loyalty to uh, this arcane and often abused procedure in the Senate, or are they going to stand up for American democracy and for voting rights? Uh, I think this is the most important thing facing our political system right now. So I'm not even going to acknowledge the premise, because if we just let this slide by, our democracy is in deep trouble. I really think that. Absolutely. I agree 100,000 um, percent. You know, we have seen that massive voter turnout. Um, if you've got somebody who is handling the certification, massive voter turnout cannot overcome what that partisan certification looks like. We've got an election coming up in 2022 that has so much hanging in the balance. For Congress and for the U.S. Senate to abdicate its responsibility to American democracy is unconscionable. And so we must put pressure on them. We must call them. We must make it clear what's at stake. That's what has to happen in this democracy. So I think that's an interesting frame to it. I guess here's what I would ask, because um, I think this is also important. If you, and I believe me, you know, I, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not shrugging. Um, I am worrying, but I'm not shrugging. And I guess my question is, I feel like the more we have conversations like this, the more, when we say the Senate, I think we're refer referring to one or two senators, right? We're talking about Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema, and maybe a couple of others. Um, and, and I feel like the more people like the three of us talk about how high the stakes are, the more uh, those specific senators say, see, I'm, everyone's mad at me, I'm, on the, I'm doing it right. So if, if you were in the room, if you had the opportunity to be in the room with a senator who is on the fence about this, and, and you know, in theory, on the fence about, is this worth ending the Senate filibuster, the 60 vote requirement for, um, what, would you, what would you say to them? What, what do you think? What's, what do you think the case is that might persuade um, the, the remaining handful of Democratic senators who don't always, already agree with the three of us? The, the, the principal case is the urgent need for this legislation and also for H.R. 4, as it's called, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which would restore the full strength of the Voting Rights Act after it was, after it was gutted by the Supreme Court in the Shelby County case in 2013. Uh, the, the principal argument for this legislation is how 
urgently it's needed, how it is based on things that have worked and been done by Republicans and Democrats all over the country, and how it's needed to stop this plain view attack on democracy that's happening in states all across the country. The other thing is in terms of the filibuster, you know, I wouldn't lead with, I think it's a very interesting topic, but I think that people make changes in something like the filibuster because they care about the thing that it's blocking. Uh, it's not in the constitution. Hamilton and Madison were aghast at the notion of, of, having, of requiring a super majority for legislation. It has not even always been used the way it is now. It was used to block voting rights and other civil rights bills. But the idea that what we have right now, which is that everything in the Senate needs 60 votes, is new, is recent, and is a recipe for, for a failed government. It's important to note also, you can do something about it without ending the filibuster. There's about 24 or 25 exceptions to the filibuster already. We all know now um, about reconciliation and that budget bills can pass by majority vote. We know that Supreme Court justices can be confirmed by majority vote, cabinet officials, lower court judges. There's many other things too. Uh, military base closing bills get voted on by a majority vote. Trade agreements get voted on by a majority vote. Congress has the power to decide what gets a majority vote, what can get a supermajority, and it doesn't end the filibuster. And I think the health of our democracy demands that same kind of uh, urgent treatment. Okay, I think we're about to open it up to questions, but first, uh, Professor Anderson, I want to give you your your time with uh, Joe Manchin. What, what would you add to that? Um, I would say that when you look at what is spurring all of these bills across the nation, um, it is not election integrity. Um, it, it, these bills are targeted at key constituencies. They are targeted at American citizens. What he has to do is protect American citizens' right to vote. It's not that hard. It's not that ambiguous. This is clear. Um, and, and that and that he can go down in history as uh, a champion of democracy, one of the key men who saved American democracy. Wow, wouldn't he want to be that person instead of the one who sat there um, like, a, like a Neville Chamberlain and, 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 and let uh, authoritarianism take hold and, and, and destroy what had been there. So that's how I would argue, save American democracy, fight for American citizens' right to vote. Okay, well, Senator I, I, Manchin, by the way, was Secretary of State of West Virginia. He actually cares about election law uh, and running elections well. And in the past, he has supported this legislation. So he has not been ideologically opposed to it. I think Professor Anderson's exactly right. He has a chance to be a true hero. Well, uh, I can see on, on the Zoom screen, it says we're live on Facebook. So hopefully, you know, so somebody's watching. Uh, yeah. Um, and I will, uh, I'll turn it over to Patricia to uh, lead the Q&A. Excellent, such a good conversation and so important. And we've got a lot of questions, um, but I just wanna get one in if I could. Could you please, to any of the three of you, uh, what, state if if you could name one has best practices is there a state or is it something that we no state really has and that's why we need hr1 and a, or hr4 or both uh, you know i've asked i asked my colleagues this question um you know there's a number of states have pretty have better systems i would say colorado um, is, is, uh, is one where really they make an effort to make it so that everybody who's eligible can vote. They don't have any misconduct or fraud to speak of uh, and people uh, are able to vote. Um, and uh, uh, you know, a place like Arizona, interestingly, which is a Republican state, at least has been up until now, has had campaign finance reform, public financing of campaigns. It has had redistricting commission it has had a lot of other good stuff, and, and there has now been uh, a real attack on these very encouraging things in, in Arizona law. And we have this, which we have not mentioned yet, this utterly insane phony audit of the votes going on in Maricopa County, where, where a, a private 
company led by a conspiracy theorist was hired by the legislature. The company's called, as we know, Cyber Ninjas. Um, and they're doing things like looking for bamboo fibers in the, in the paper because that would prove that China really elect, voted the ballots for Biden. And that unfortunately is more currently the case in Arizona than their story passed. Um, I, I would add to that uh, Minnesota, if I remember correctly, has same day voter, you know, Colorado is almost is basically all male, um, which a lot of states were had a lot more male voting, but it, for the states that want to sort of preserve traditional voting, a state like Minnesota, and interestingly, you have that progressive tradition throughout the has <laughs> um, led to a lot, you know, even states like Wisconsin, which has backslid in so many different ways on democracy issues, actually has very good election administration in many cases because of this progressive history. And this is the 1920s progressives, not, not the current iteration. So many of those people were Republicans, some were Democrats. Um, and I would say Oregon, the way that it handled its um, automatic voter registration that just really expanded the electorate. And, and that expansion also led to increased diversity and increased turnout. Um, and they helped provide the model for other states that were looking. So like California looked to California and went, ooh, that looks really, really good. Um, and you know what, we're gonna to add to that. We're going to actually pre-register 16 and 17 year olds as well. Um, and then Illinois adding on, and we're going to add to the number of government agencies that are used to be able to pre-register. So when you have these states that are models for how do we expand access to the electorate? How do we make sure that American citizens can vote? Uh, we do have the models out there. Unfortunately, we have the models for how to act a fool. That is the scholarly <laughs> term for the mess that we're seeing. <laughs> That's, that's a great point, actually. Great points by all of you, because I think what we also need to inject into the conversation about this is, yes, there are ways of, of, of making this work for us. Um, so we have a ton of questions. I'm going to go, I'm going to just name off Ann Hess first, and then uh, Leonard Levy, and then Ed Cox, If you, and we'll keep moving down the line. Hopefully, we can get to all of your questions. Okay. Um, hi. Can you see and hear me? Yes. Okay, so my question to the panel and to the moderator is the most serious threat to our democracy is what the legis state legislators are doing in terms of challenging the uh, legitimacy of state electors. And if we don't get uh, a solution from the federal level, what can we do? Because they are going to be successful in sinking our democracy, as far as I can tell, unless there are some strategies that can be uh, carried out on a state by state level. And I don't see any, I haven't heard or seen anything about that. Uh, David, do you wanna start with that? And then we'll go to uh, Carol and then Michael. Okay, I'll, I'll try to be uh, go quickly, partly because I don't have a great answer to your question, Anne. Um, I think that, the way, I, the way that it, I think it's generally helpful to think about these things is that um, many, many politicians, the question they ask is not what's right, but what can I get away with? And we don't yet know that a state legislature can get away with blatantly overturning the results of an election or stepping in and um, saying the people don't get to choose electors, we do. They may try, we don't know yet whether or not they can get away with it. And so some other issues, and, and you know, again, federal legislation would be the by far and away the best plan A. Plan B, I think, is going to involve pressure from civil society. So we've seen some cases where the business community sort of is reluctantly but gradually taking note of this. Um, I think we're going to, we would see an enormous popular protest movement take place. And so I think that um, the, the more people worry that they will face consequences, um, and that they won't get away with it, the more likely they are not to try. Um, and th so I, that, I don't have, a, again, like I said, an answer, but I do think that's the way to answer that question is to think, how can you disincentivize this kind of uh, action before someone tries it and says, hey, I can get away with it. Great, let's do it all the time. Um, I agree. One of the, the key elements is the mobilization of civil society, um, the mobilization of litigators, um, and the mobilization of the populace um, demanding democracy. 
and making sure that folks in the state legislators, legislatures understand that there are electoral consequences for um, overturning democracy, for challenging democracy the way that they are. That, and, 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 and David nailed it. Um, knowing what you can get away with, the lack of accountability in American, in American society has led to a whole range of pernicious wrongs. Being an accountability society means that we can begin to address these kinds of wrongs. And, and, and it's going to take a mass movement of all of these key elements and being un understanding that the threat of violence is always there. That's what we saw with that insurrection on January 6th. That's what we saw with the storming of the Capitol in Michigan and the storming of the Capitol in Oregon. It's always there and it's designed to intimidate. We have to be willing to say, no, no, that is not how we do business. And I, I think that uh, there's a very critical role to play here for Republican officials, Republican activists, Republican legislators of conscience. In the period after this election, um, it, it was Republican and Democratic judges, 60 of them or more, who ruled, no, you know what, Biden really won. You know what, these fraud charges are not real. Uh, it was officials uh, who, who did their duty, who counted under pressure. We fight, fought and fight with Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, for example, but when push came to shove, he stood up to Trump. Doug Ducey, the governor of Arizona, stood up to Trump. Um, and it, there, was, uh, there was a willingness to do it that I worry isn't gonna be there in the future. But any Republican leader or conservatives uh, of all kinds have a very particular role to play and a chance to really play a very significant role. I'll also say something that is to me quite encouraging and I've been working with a lot of these folks, the business community. Uh, the business community, major corporations have gotten very involved and very fired up about this. Um, many of them were very alarmed by the law in Georgia. They actually worked, as I understand it, behind the scenes to try to improve it. Um, in, in Texas, uh, American Airlines and Dell Computers and Microsoft have spoken out against those egregious laws. Um, executives led by Ken Frazier and Ken Chenault, two of the leading black executives in the country, have really rallied the conscience. And you know, there's a lot of issues, certainly where there's debate in politics and regulation and taxes and so forth. But these, these uh, business leaders, many of them have said, some things are outside the line or beyond the pale. And this, uh, you know, they all, a year ago, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, uh, you know, so many businesses said, said they, they understood how important it was to say Black Lives Matter and to speak out. And that if they said that then, they have to act now. And this is very, that is something to me that is not partisan, certainly, but is quite encouraging. Terrific. I'm going to um, go to Ed Cox uh, next because I want to, I think it's very important that we get a Republican uh, viewpoint in here too. Ed? Well, it's more, it's more of a, gen, it's more of a, let's see, am I, yeah, it's more of a general uh, uh, comment and actually looking for the panelist's view with respect to redistricting. We're now just starting the decennial redistricting process, which will be very important with respect to what happens with legislatures, when you get bipartisan things done with them, and also with Congress. The first one out of the shoot is Illinois for unusual reasons. Uh, and I'd appreciate it if the panelists would comment on what is happening in the Illinois redistricting process now. I'll, I'll go first, because I think my view on this might be, um, well, I, hopefully nuanced, but I'm not sure that it's the same as, as some of my uh, fellow Democrats. So, um, you know, what's happening, I don't know the exact details of what's happening in Illinois, but I would assume, you know, Illinois is one of the very few states where Democrats control redistricting top to bottom and in the past has been redistricted, uh, you know, pretty intensely. Um, you know, what's interesting about it is the, I think that as when I wrote, wrote my book, this was true. Um, I believe Republicans had full control of redistricting in 19 states and Democrats had full control of redistricting in four. So I said, you know, it's both parties gerrymander, but that's like saying Michael Phelps and I both swim, right? There's a difference of degree that is uh, a pretty large difference. 
Um, I think what's ha what I think there's two types of gerrymandering, um, and there's two different ways to address each. So one is at the state level, where I would like to see, regardless of which party's in charge, an attempt to draw competitive districts. Because right now, some of these, and I was talking to an official in Wisconsin who was saying, you know, every single statewide office in Wisconsin is held by a Democrat, but there's almost a two to one supermajority of Republicans in the state legislature, and that's purely because of redistricting. Um, and that is not serving anybody well. I mean, the, the Republican supermajority there is making bad decisions because they don't- I, I, I understand that, but yeah. I'm asking about Illinois because they're first. Look, the need for fair redistricting is crucial to our democracy. Illinois is out of the shoot. They're not using the data, the census data. They're using their own. And for what reasons? And I just appreciate the- yeah. Uh, so, your your comments on it. Well, so so it, we'll we'll get back to or we we can now get back to Illinois. So I think in I, I would be disappointed if Illinois draws the Democratic version of what you see in the the Republican. You know, says okay, we'll be a Democratic version of what Republicans have done in Wisconsin. I don't think that would make sense. We understand both sides do it. Sure. <laughs> So I'm just asking. You know, I, I do think it's quite important for those of us who. who but but who, I think context who. is important too, and I think, and you'll you'll see where I'm getting with this. So the if you look at the national question of which party controls Congress, my view is if Democrats have the ability to uh, gerrymander Illinois to counteract at least in a tiny way a Republican gerrymander in Texas, I think they should do it because there's two different elections taking place. There's the district election and. Unfortunately, the more gerrymandered the state is, the less competitive that is. Um, but then there's the national election. And so the question becomes, does, you know, if um, let's say 52% of the country votes for, we'll just reverse it, for Republicans and Democrats still hold a majority in Congress, is that fair or not? And I'd say that's actually more important in this particular moment, and it's not fair. So what I would like to see is a state like Illinois reach out to, let's say, a state like Georgia and offer to hold hands and say, we will reform our redistricting system if you reform yours. And we won't do it before then because otherwise it's sort of unilaterally disarming. Um, and I don't suspect that will happen, but that's what I would personally like to see. And at some, you know, I talk to some people uh, who tend to agree with me on many, many different things who would like to see sort of uh, redistricting permissions no matter what, but that's not my view. My view is that the closer you can get to having a competitive national election for control of Congress, the better. Um, when it comes to the data and stuff, I'm less uh, less informed. I'm sorry, I'm um, gonna quickly, Mike, because we're gonna keep- I, I think on. it's important for those of us who support redistricting reform to uh, decry gerrymandering when it's done by Democrats, as well as when it's done by Republicans. And we, for example, opposed the the move to gerrymander in New Jersey last year, uh, and, 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 and the move by Democrats to have second thoughts on redistricting reform, let's put it that way, in Virginia. I think it's a challenge, precisely for the reason described of, um, you, you know, folks say, oh, it's unilateral disarmament. Uh, and that is one of the many reasons why federal legislation uh, is, is significantly the answer, because it applies the same standard of uh, ending extreme partisan gerrymandering uh, and fairness and transparency in procedures nationwide. It doesn't matter who the, who the control is of the legislature. We had hoped the Supreme Court would step in. The Supreme Court refused to step in, but interestingly, Chief Justice Roberts, on behalf of the Supreme Court said, well, we in the courts, we don't have the power to do this, but Congress does. And for example, look at HR1. Uh, he actually specifically pointed to this legislation as the way Congress on a bipartisan basis could address gerrymandering. And I do think that that is the answer. I agree with that. Okay, I'm gonna move on to um, Leonard Levy and then, uh, Jim Zirin and Morley. I don't know if we're going to have time for all that, so let's do it quickly if we can. Aren't Lightning the, round. Aren't the voter Leonard? suppression laws really self-defeating? For example, don't they end up suppressing the senior voters who tend to vote Republican? Aren't Republicans beginning to realize that they're suppressing their own voters? Isn't that what Trump did by basically discouraging mail-in voting during the election? Isn't this all self-defeating? I would say it is self-defeating, but again, think about the framing. Our, our leverage goes up as the voting populace goes down. And so there's a sense that a willingness to have collateral damage um, in some of those constituencies in order to shrink 
um, other, other constituencies at a greater amount. And, and so that's the calculus that is happening here. Um, and so you take Georgia and absentee ballots. Georgia had no excuse absentee ballots for 15 years. Now in, the, in 2020, uh, when Democrats overwhelmingly used those absentee ballots, now they became a problem and you saw all kinds of restrictions being put on them. Even knowing that Republicans have overwhelmingly used prior to this time, absentee ballots to vote. It was a calculation. We're going to get more of them than we are going to get of our folk. I know, Michael, we have to have a, a hard stop. Michael? No, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> You're good. Okay. Um, so can we go, do anyone want to add something or we're going to go to Jim Zirin? Yes, I'm, I guess I have a couple of observations. I think the basic problem is the Constitution, which sets up the Electoral College. The Constitution, uh, the way it was constructed, wanted to fill the, uh, the government from the people. And it did it with the Electoral College. It did it with senators who were owned by the state legislatures. And there was no direct election of senators. Uh, did it by denying uh, women the vote, uh, which didn't happen for uh, a century uh, after the enactment of the Constitution. and. Uh, uh, and so uh, you have the power in the state legislatures. Now, uh, there's a safeguard because in the swing states, that uh, uh, as it sorts out, uh, the swing states are the ones that decide the election. Uh, you may have Republican majorities in the legislatures, uh, but they're not veto-proof and you have uh, Democratic governors. So they would not be able in the last analysis to uh, reverse uh, uh, the vote uh, the, that uh, selects the electors. So uh, uh, I think you have to take a hard look at uh, the Constitution if you really want to get to the root of the problem. Uh, and we tend to make the Constitution an icon, but uh, it certainly had its imperfections from the start, uh, particularly with regard to race. But the second observation is... Well uh, do you have a question? Um, yeah, well, the same observation, which I think is for Professor Anderson, uh, maybe this is a question that uh, you had, uh, you made the statement that uh, the, uh, uh, because of uh, voter suppression, uh, Hillary Clinton did not win the election and blacks uh, really didn't vote uh, and didn't turn out because uh, they uh, were not permitted to vote uh, in certain states. And uh, Eddie Glaude Jr. Uh, took a different uh, position. Uh, he said that uh, he and a number of black leaders went to the White House, very excited when Obama was elected president. Uh, it was a dream come true, as it was for many of us. And uh, he uh, they had a list of, uh, of uh, items they wanted the president to address. And Obama looked at the list and said, you know, I agree with every one of them, uh, but uh, I have to be president of all the people, so I really can't be out front uh, on these issues. And he said the black leaders were uh, quite disgusted with this. And that's the reason why uh, blacks did not turn out for Hillary Clinton, because they felt betrayed by the Clintons and betrayed really by Obama. So my question is, uh, is it a fact that uh, Hillary Clinton was not elected president because of voter suppression, or is it because uh, blacks were disillusioned with Hillary Clinton? Um, and so my answer is, is that when you had the journalists saying that black folks just didn't turn out as if this was an election where the Voting Rights Act was still in place, that was ignoring one of the key variables that was affecting the way that voter turnout worked so that these IDs were now in place during this election. You had massive poll closures. The Brennan Center did a fabulous study on the number of polling places closed and how disproportionately they were in these previous pre-clearance states. And what we know is that when you move a polling place um, so far away from the black community, black voter turnout goes down. So I don't think it is an either or thing. It is that we have to look at what happens when you have the states 
erect barriers for access to the ballot box for African-Americans. We cannot act like that has no impact whatsoever. It really does have an impact. And it, it can be both in the sense that voter turnout was down in 2016 for black voters in Milwaukee where there was voter suppression, but also was down in Detroit really where there wasn't. Um, and both, both are true. I wanna say something ringing defense of the constitution if I might. Um, for all its problems and all the ways in which it was not a democratic document when it was written, we've had many amendments since then. And in fact, there is a right to vote in the Constitution. It is mentioned explicitly five times in amendments passed uh, by the people. And we may, we may be in a point where we need to be looking at really deep and fundamental constitutional change, including constitutional amendments to defend our democracy if the courts and the legislatures won't do it. But I will also say one thing too about the Constitution, the original Constitution, the one that the guys in the powdered wigs wrote, which was they did not in any way intend to give state legislatures some kind of free hand to suppress the vote. James Madison very specifically insisted on what is called the elections clause. It's in the constitution. It says, yes, state legislatures can set the times, places, and manners of elections, but Congress can override them at any time for any reason. And he did that because he knew that they were gonna be corrupt. They were gonna be dominated by political parties factions, as they called them, that they would gerrymander. They didn't call it that because Elbridge Jerry was standing there and they hadn't invented the word yet, but gerrymandering and voter suppression, that's actually why that's in the Constitution. Congress has the power to defend our democracy, to override those state legislatures. And the big question that historians like Dr. Anderson uh, and everybody else years from now will ask, looking at this year of 2021, is did the American people save their democracy from an incredible assault that it is facing from within or not. And that's the question we all need to be asking. I don't wanna turn away from that. This fight over federal legislation is the most important thing going on right now for any of us in my view. Yes. You all have been amazing. I really respect your work. All of us uh, on the call today, it's been a really important conversation and I wish we had more time. David, you have one last comment while we... No, I, th I think a ringing defense of the constitution is a good way to end, so I will... Terrific. It always worked Thank at the White you. House Correspondence Dinner, right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> that was a, it got a laugh every time. <laughs> did, <laughs> did you write the stuff about Trump? I didn't. I, I had been at the White House for all of four weeks back then. So uh, <laughs> okay. whether, whether you were about to give me credit or blame, I don't deserve <laughs> I had to, had to know. I had to know. I was there. Okay. Thank you so much, everybody. Please tune in next week when we talk with Ephraim Halibi, the uh, ex-director of the Mossad, about uh, Hamas and Israel, Gaza. Um, but this is a, a conversation that will continue, and I hope we can have you all back. Carol, David, Michael, thank you so much. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Thank you for